This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. In the, that UC Santa Barbara, I'm also currently the faculty director for UC Education Abroad programs in Chile and Argentina. And I just want to take a brief moment as I start uh, to say what a wonderful opportunity, uh, what a privilege it has been for me to be uh, participating in study abroad programs this past year. It's been a very rocky year in Chile, um, as, as, you, as I will talk about briefly, as also some of you know, given the global pandemic. But I want to encourage any students, any undergraduates listening to us today to really think about doing study abroad when the opportunity comes along. It's such a great opportunity to grow, to meet new people, and to learn to see the world in, in different ways. So it's, I'm just thrilled to be part of that journey for so many students. Uh, I'm a scholar of science and technology studies, STS. Uh, this is an area where, um, of research where we look at the relationship between science and technology on the one hand and politics, culture, economics, and society on the other hand. Um, and I'll be showing you some of the practical implications of this kind of research for how we think about democracy today. So here's an outline of what I will be talking about. Uh, first, I will talk about the importance of science for democracy, both from a theoretical perspective, but also its importance for specific policies. Uh, then I will talk about uh, Chile, which is where I have done most of my research on these topics. Then I will share some findings from my book that came out in 2018, uh, Science, and uh, Science and Environment in Chile, The Politics of Expert Advice. Um, and finally, I will talk about some of the possibilities for constitutional reform that are happening in Chile right now. So some of you might recall, in March 2017, there was a, a large-scale protest. You know, scientists took to the street to protest what they saw as an attack on science by the Trump administration. I took these two photos of posters that I saw at the protest here in Santa Barbara. Um, and these two ideas, science is most trusted when it is publicly funded and use science to protect the environment. These are ideas that many of us might consider to be common sense. And the reason for that is that they have been with us for a very long time, at least since the 18th century, during the period called the Enlightenment, when the rational thinking and rationality came to be seen as above the political fray and therefore as a good check on government. Now, for this ideal uh, to work, it, it relies on certain assumptions about what science is and how it works. And over many years of research, STS scholars have come to have found that some of these assumptions are wrong. Uh, for example, we know that scientists' uh, personal histories, their biases, their trainings, their ideas shape the kinds of research questions they ask, what methods they use, and therefore the results of their work. We know also that there are global hierarchies that mean that certain research questions and research methods get ignored. And we know um, that who funds science shapes not only what research gets done, but also how credible it is for society at large. So we have good reason to think critically about this relationship between science and government with the knowledge that science is an important tool of government. And I'm going to illustrate with 
uh, a specific public policy, environmental impact assessments. Uh, some of you might know these as CEQA, which is how it's referred to here in California, given the name of the law, or NEPA, uh, which is how they're referred to at the federal level, or EIRs, Environmental Impact Review. These are all different names for the same idea uh, or the same policy that seeks to combine public input with scientific studies to anticipate the negative impacts a proposed project is likely to have on the environment. And I have this photo here of the 1969 oil spill that happened right here in the Santa Barbara Channel because this was really the event that forced the hand of President Nixon to sign into uh, policy the National Environmental Policy Act that was the first to require EIAs. So some of you might have heard also of some very famous controversial recent EIAs, uh, Keystone XL, the North Dakota Access Pipeline. Again, here in Santa Barbara County, um, ERA Energy, um, PetroRock Energy recently retracted their EIRs. Uh, they were seeking approval to build new oil wells in Cat Canyon in Santa, near Santa Maria. So those are all um, EIAs that anti-oil and anti-gas activists have, um, have contested, have fought against, always demanding better EIAs, meaning um, more, uh, more exhaustive scientific studies, uh, more honest public uh, deliberation processes. On the other hand, the Trump administration, but also other governments, have tried to weaken EIA regulations in order to try to speed up investments in, in new projects. So EIAs um, have become very ubiquitous worldwide. Some people say that they are the most copied U.S. policy in the regulatory playbook. This means nearly every country in the world uses EIAs, and everywhere EIAs go, they carry with them this ideal of public science as the foundation for good policy decisions. The March for Science was also a global phenomenon, with sister marches everywhere from Chile to Uganda. So I became interested in seeing if this ideal of public science traveled with EIAs everywhere they went. I was suspicious that there were countries using EIAs without necessarily sharing this ideal or without having the institutions to put it into practice. So this led me to Chile. Now, I had many personal and other reasons for wanting to do my research there, but the main reason had to do with Chile's recent political history. Between 1973 and 1990, Chile was governed by a military dictatorship led by this man here, um, Augusto Pinochet. Um, during this time, Chile became one of the few countries worldwide to transition from being a low-income country to a high-income country. Its success, economic success, was so large that in 2010, Chile became the first South American country to join the OECD, which is a club of wealthy nations. Um, the World Bank, the OECD, and other international organizations have repeatedly, over many years, attributed Chile's economic success to its early and strong adoption of what is known as free market or neoliberal policies. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about neoliberalism in a second. What I want to highlight here is in 1990, Chile transitioned back to democracy. That's what this photo here is depicting. And Pinochet handed power over to uh, Patricio Elwin, the first elected president. 
So democracy brought continuity and change. On the hand of continuity, for example, the constitution from the dictatorship era was retained, but there was also change. For example, EIAs became required. So what is neoliberalism? Um, as I said, Chile has become famous worldwide because of its early and strong adoption of neoliberalism, and this is just a small selection of books that, that discuss this. Um, neoliberalism is a political rationality that celebrates markets as the best way of organizing all human activity, including the production of knowledge. Now, we know a lot about how neoliberalism has impacted uh, natural resource management, uh, anti-poverty policies, global trade. We know much less about how it has impacted science itself. And given neoliberals' belief in markets, we really need to be asking, what if a country's uh, institutions of science weren't set up to produce knowledge, but to sell a service for a profit? So that is, that is essentially what I um, set out to do with my research. This, in a, in a nutshell, is my main argument. Um, first, I argue that the Chilean state gets it, it, its advice not through trusted advisors, but through a market. Uh, this means that the state works with very low quality data. Uh, the data is fragmented, it tends to be short term. Um, that is because consultants are under pressure to be cheap and therefore they really cannot maintain the quality standards that you would find without that kind of market competition. Um, this market creates the suspicion of conflicts of interest. So we have companies that pay scientists to do studies on their behalf and then they submit those studies to state officials that rely on that information in order to regulate the companies. Um, this, this creates this idea that, that the companies are doing studies that are self-serving, it strengthens the hand of companies that are, are resisting regulation, and it is undermining trust in science. So in response to the suspicion of conflicts of interest, scientists have tried to differentiate themselves from consultants. By scientists here, I mean uh, people whose primary place of work is a university, and by consultant, I mean people with specialized training whose primary place of work is a for-profit corporation that sells studies to a client. And so Chilean scientists have used a number of strategies to try to establish their independence from private interests um, as a way to try to assert their credibility. These ways have not really succeeded, and I'm going to give you uh, some examples in a few minutes. My fourth and final argument is that uh, this has ended up sh reshaping how state officials think of their role in EIA decisions. And so state officials participate in EIA decisions as if they were umpires responsible for enforcing the rules, which they see as neutral. So think back to the Enlightenment ideal. Um, there, science was seen as being above the political fray and therefore a check on government. And so science had a kind of symbolic uh, power, a real, real power and symbolic power to, as objective and therefore as a good resource for a government to show to citizens that they were adopting policies that would work based on independent evidence. In Chile's neoliberal state, this is flipped on its head. Science becomes suspect uh, and the rules become, come to have this symbolic uh, power and authority um, as if they were a, a check on political behavior. And this has far-reaching consequences for 
both EIAs and for how democracy work in practice. So how did I get to these conclusions? How did I build this argument? Um, this slide talks about my research methods. I compared, I looked across uh, four controversial EIAs. Um, so uh, in the salmon farming industry over here, um, an EIA to build, for a proposal to build a very large hydroelectric project in Patagonia. Um, the Pascualama gold mine that I will talk more about in a second. And a uh, pulp paper and pulp mill that was built just upstream from a protected wetland. And so in these cases, I looked at the relationships and the interactions between scientists, state officials, company employees, activists, and communities to see what the politics of expertise were in these cases. I don't compare them. Rather, I look across them to identify patterns uh, to how decision-making was happening um, and to build sort of a unified argument about the politics of expertise in Chile. I relied on different sources, um, so many legal documents, uh, other kinds of written materials, but about 100 interviews with strategic informants involved in these cases. So I want to share with you an example from one of the four controversies that I studied, uh, the Pascualama gold mine. So Pascualama was a controversial project to build a gold mine at over 16,000 feet above sea level. Um, here, weather conditions are ferocious, and we can find glaciers. Glaciers are important to regulating downstream water supplies, and so agricultural communities in this area became alarmed when they heard about the project. First, a group of activists hired uh, some glaciologists to assess um, the, the company's plans and tell the, the activists what impacts they could expect from this mine. Uh, then the local irrigators association decided to hire their own team of glaciologists, and then the local senator, and then the regional government, and then the EIA agency that actually uh, reviews this information and produces the EIA license so that by the end of the process, we had five or six different teams of glaciologists, each one working for a different stakeholder and, and producing their own studies about this. By contrast, the original EIA studies, um, not a single glaciologist even participated in those original studies. Now, there's many things that are interesting about this case, but I want to highlight just two. Uh, the first is that each st stakeholder had wildly different reasons for choosing their team of glaciologists. So activists uh, went out of their way to find scientists who had never worked for any industry ever. Meanwhile, state officials actively wanted glaciologists that had industry experience. The local irrigators association, which here represents big farmers, they were the only ones that actually looked at academic credentials. The second interesting thing is that although the, the glaciologists were each working for different groups, but they largely agreed in their assessment uh, of what was going to happen with these glaciers, uh, but none of their recommendations were really reflected in the final EIA license. This led to a weak EIA license, weak in the sense that because state officials relied on a contradictory and twisted reading of the data available to them, Twice already, Chilean courts have been unwilling to hold the company responsible for damages to the glaciers in this area. The courts instead have said that it's the EIA that is at fault because the EIA set a standard that was impossible to follow. 
So the third thing that is interesting here, this case reflects um, a generalized crisis of trust or, uh, in science, in Chilean science. Um, so here you have an image of uh, activists occupying the annual meeting of Chilean ecologists. So this is an academic conference uh, that activists interrupted, disrupted with um, uh, megaphones, yelling, you know, accusing scientists of being sellouts and of hastening the destruction of, of nature through its study by doing work for companies like the Pascualama, like that one behind the Pascualama mine. So in response to these accusations, scientists have tried to assert their credibility by distinguishing themselves from consultants. You know, the Chilean market for science has repeatedly, it blurs this boundary between scientists and consultants. So it's tried to distinguish themselves from consultants. Chilean university scientists have said things like, for example, we just describe nature as it is. With this statement, what they're doing is creating a distance between the scientific work they do and sort of the messy and political work that consultants do. And those, those are the terms that they use, messy and political. Or they say, we just apply the scientific method, as if the scientific method was some mechanical recipe that could be applied to any uh, process and, and guarantees on its own unbiased and, and credible results. We know that's just simply not the case. Another one of my favorite um, boundary drawing uh, strategies scientists used was to say we reach results contrary to those who hire us, thereby you know, implicitly or not that implicitly recognizing that the, the interest of their client is factoring into, the, into, the, into their results, into, into how they're doing their work. Or we just follow the contract. Again, trying to say, you know, one thing is the, the science we do at the university and another thing is the science we do uh, for hire, and that is to different standards of quality and credibility. Um, so in saying all of these things, university scientists were, um, you know, made themselves appear incre increasingly and narrowly focused and therefore irrelevant to the kinds of questions that were being asked of them, you know, through, through a policy like the EIA. Um, and so instead of doing groundbreaking research, they appeared to just be keeping an inventory of nature. And this, of course, only increased distrust in, in science. So all these relationships um, reflect what I call Chile's umpire state. Um, so in the umpire state, each private party has their own scientific truth, and the role of the state is limited to mediating between these you know, private truths without analyzing or balancing competing claims because the state can only do what the law allows us to do. So this idea that the state can only do what it is explicitly allowed to do while the private sector can do anything that is not explicitly forbidden to it is known in Chile as the subsidiarity principle. And this subsidiarity principle has been used to justify the privatization of universities um, and of state-owned uh, labs and other research institutes. So these photos here illustrate this privatization. Um, here we have the abandoned garden of what used to be uh, Chile's National Center for the Environment. It has now been permanently closed. Uh, here we have scientists, Chilean scientists, um, in 2016 protesting poor working conditions um, and lack of um, pensions and health care access. And here we have fishery scientists. Here you can see a little fish on his jacket. 
These are fishery scientists employed by one of the last remaining state-owned fisheries labs, um, sort of protesting the defunding of this lab. Um, and here they say, you know, honk if you think research is necessary. So think back to the, um, the ideals behind uh, the EIA. The goal of the EIA was to combine uh, public input, so a democratic process of deliberation with the people who would be affected by these, by these projects, with scientific studies, that state officials would then take both of these sources of information together to actively reflect on them and balance competing interests. For example, interest to protect the environment, uh, respect for local planning decisions, and also an interest to foster economic activity. The umpire state cannot uh, do this kind of balancing act because it just merely hides behind the rules um, as if these were the only guide to uh, state to state decision making. So I want to pivot now uh, to talk about um, the opportunities for constitutional reform that are happening in Chile uh, right now. This is a photo from November of 2019. Um, so in October 2019, just a few months ago, well, I guess almost a year ago now, um, a subway, a, what began as a protest against a subway uh, fare hike quickly erupted into a national protest at cities all across the country um, as mili millions of Chileans took to the streets to protest the injustices and the inequities produced by uh, neoliberal policies. And so here this photo is of downtown Santiago. Uh, this is the main thoroughfare of the city. Um, and you can see it's lit up by um, uh, tanks throwing tear gas at protesters, um, small, small um, arson uh, events. Um, and so this, th these protests went on for months. Um, they have been suspended now because of the global pandemic. Um, but I am quite sure that they will return because the pandemic has only reinforced the inequalities that people were protesting against. Um, in a way, what these protests have also really shown us is that after years of being celebrated by the World Bank and other organizations as a model to follow because of its economic successes and political stability, the mask has come off. And, and the Chilean model really seems to have run its course uh, as it's facing this, this real crisis of uh, legitimacy. So one of the main outcomes to come from this protest so far, um, you know, in, in mid-November, uh, Chile's political class agreed to initiate a constitutional reform process. And end of October right now is when the first plebiscite of this process is scheduled for. Um, and I want to just highlight beyond the technicalities and the real risks of this process, that this is a one, it's once in a lifetime opportunity to really reshape the values and the logic guiding the kinds of politics that we want to have as a society. So this is a huge opportunity for really deep social reform. It doesn't solve all problems, but it creates new uh, ground rules and new values guiding how politics should be practiced in Chile uh, in the coming years. So what should a forward-looking constitution include when it comes to knowledge production? I think that this is a really pressing question, not just for Chile, but for all countries in the 21st century. Um, 
for the case of Chile in particular, the first thing I argue for is that we need to replace the principle of subsidiarity that I spoke about earlier with the idea of dignity. And dignity has become one of the central rallying cries of the protests. Um, dignity here refers, you know, it, it helps to redefine the role of the state in society away from simply ensuring economic growth um, and sort of economic views of development to ensuring equal and just treatment under the law. Um, and so this is, this is something that is crucial to people as they feel that they have been reduced to mere consumers um, and clients uh, rather than human beings. Um, so dignity in a way to recenter the, and, and, and add new ethics to the role of the state in society. Um, the next three ideas have to do with uh, democratizing science in different ways. Um, first, uh, democratize science by recognizing the right to information and data. Um, these are not um, a, a simple thing of consumerism, but these are essential to exercising citizenship in the 21st century, as important as the right to privacy and so many other things. And, and I want to emphasize here that by information and data, I am not referring to more transparency. Um, Chile has plenty of transparency, and transparency here I mean simply publishing and making things available online. Um, there's plenty of transparency in Chile, but that transparency does not enable accountability. Because for accountability, this information and data needs to be meaningful and credible to the people who are using it. Um, and what we have seen in Chile is that, is that the market, producing information and data through a market, does not ensure that that information and data are meaningful or credible to broad audiences. We also face tremendous challenges, you know, as well as opportunities, but challenges around you know, governance through algorithms um, and surveillance um, and, and questions of privacy related to information technologies. And I don't think there are any easy questions in how we should govern these things. But one thing that I am quite sure of based on my research in Chile is that if we leave these things to the market alone, it will only accentuate inequalities and injustices. Third point, democratize science by investing in public education, including public universities. Here in California, uh, funding in public universities and public labs is at an all-time low, just at a time when UC and many other of our public uh, schools um, and colleges are more racially diverse and more socioeconomically diverse than ever. Um, and I think the experience we have with public universities is that we need to be vigilant, we need to hold them accountable, we need to continue improving them always, but they are the only tried and true institution that we know about that produces economic mobility and that has a shot at creating the kind of meaningful and publicly credible data that we need in order to create information and data for the 21st century, uh, for, for an empowered citizen in the 21st century. Finally, democratize environmental science by recognizing the rights of nature. And with this, um, 
I think that by recognizing rights of nature in the Constitution, we have the opportunity to transform science itself so that scientists are forced to see in the specimens and in the samples that they bring into their labs, not just objects that are there to be manipulated and improved upon, but also subjects that are worthy of autonomy and integrity. And so it adds, again, a new ethics of, and a new uh, ethical relationship between scientists and nature. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.